0: focus on God's Word with Graham Weir. Hello everyone, I'm Graham Weir. Welcome to part one of the six-part Reformation Revisited series. This is a dynamic series examining the great Protestant Reformation and its vital implications for the survival of Christianity today. And today we'll be talking about that great reformer, Martin Luther. Let's begin with a prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the privilege of remembering that mighty past, that mighty heritage that you've given us as Christians. We're conscious, Lord, that if we don't remember the lessons of history, we are in danger of repeating the mistakes. So please bless us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And more than this, incline our hearts to want to do your will because we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Our text today comes from the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And in this, in this text, Paul was obviously worried about something strange going on among the believers in Thessalonica when he wrote this letter. Let's take a look at verse 1. And he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So we see here in this little piece that Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ. And he's spoken about this previously in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he encouraged them to keep the second coming in mind. So what he says here in his second letter was something that his readers were not expecting. Looking at verse 2, He says that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as at the day of Christ at hand. Now Paul is telling them in this text to be careful about becoming disturbed in mind by any news that Jesus is on his way back. Even if they receive a letter which appears to be signed by Paul. Now that would come as a shock to the Thessalonians he would be thinking about what he'd already said in his first letter. But verse 3 and 4 explain why he said this. He says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come our falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself or pretending that he is God. So Paul was telling them that before the second coming of Jesus could happen, the truth of God's word would be so overwhelmed with a tide of corruption, so bad that a man would arise sitting in the place of God and claiming to be God. Can you imagine the shock this news would give the believers in Thessalonica? Paul had written a similar warning to his younger fellow worker Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, when he said this Now the Spirit speaketh especially that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And as we look at the early church history, this is exactly what happened. And I'm going to show you a brief example. In AD 321, the first Sunday law was introduced. In AD 416, the concept of infant baptism was introduced, which ignored the Bible example of adult baptism by full immersion. A downward spiral had begun. In 593, the concept of purgatory became doctrine. And this idea was the idea that at death a person didn't really die but their soul went to some place between heaven and hell called purgatory, where they supposedly suffered continual torment until someone paid money for their soul to be released to go to heaven. And this false doctrine caused misery for millions. Friends, let's think about this. If it is true that at death the body doesn't really die, but simply takes some other life form called the soul, then we would have to say that the devil must have told the truth to even Eden when he said, thou shalt not surely die. But do you really think the devil told the truth? Of course he didn't. The Bible calls him the father of lies. In AD 787, the worship of images and statues was declared acceptable, ignoring the second commandment. And in AD 1190, the sale of indulgences was introduced. This false doctrine was supposed to enable dead souls to be released from purgatory. And it also granted freedom from sin for the buyer, the person who put money in the box. But thankfully, some wise people were not fooled and they called these things ticket to sin. And in 1545, one of the worst errors were, were introduced this was the teaching that man-made tradition was more important than what the Bible said. And there were many more that we have time for here. Well, as the false doctrine became more and more corrupted and people sank into spiritual darkness, the deluded church leaders managed to convince governments that the heretics were a danger to the state and had to be killed. And as a consequence of that decision, over the period of A.D. 336 to 1487, a grand total of more than 100 million people, more than four times the population of Australia, were branded heretics and killed just because they didn't agree with the teachings of the religious political system that claimed to be Christ's representatives on earth. It was just as the Bible had prophesied in Revelation 17, verse 6, which says, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And we know that in Bible prophetic symbolism, the word woman is just a symbol or a code word that really means a church. And as the tide of corruption swirled, the men of sin emerged like a monster from the deep as the leaders of the church became known for their depravity and their sins. And in this list you're about to see, we see a brief list of the sins of the heads of the church. Murder, adultery, stealing, sexual depravity, and there were many other things, and this was just the Pope's. The men who claimed to be God on earth and pretended to be God in heaven just as the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians it will happen. Friends, I did not invent these lists, and I'm just showing you history. Plenty of evidence is available for anyone to read in classic books like these. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon. Saints and Sinners, A History of the Popes by Amon Duffy. Truth Triumphant by Wilkinson. And this book lists some of the grim details typically suffered by many of the martyrs. This isn't bedtime, reading, really, But it's very enlightening. Well, by the 15th century, the church had become swamped by an ocean of corruption. The truths of God's word had become drowned in a sea of tradition and meaningless rituals. And upon this scene ended the early reformers like John Wycliffe, John Huss and Jerome of Prague. These early reformers protested strongly against the excesses of the church and in particular the selling of indulgences and the immoral living of the popes and the priests and the misuse of offering money to support evil lifestyles. This didn't win that many friends among the corrupt leaders of the church and after Wycliffe's death from a stroke at the age of 64 the enraged church actually dug up his bones burned them and threw them into the River Swift in Lutterwest. Huss and Jerome were given mock trials and they were burned at the stake. About a 100 years after these events, there was a young man in Germany by the name of Martin Luther. He was growing up in the home of parents who did their best to instruct their children in the knowledge of God and the practice of Christian virtue. In fact, Martin's father, who was a copper miner, often prayed in the hearing of his son that the boy might remember the name of the Lord and one day aid in the advancement of truth. Little did he know what the Lord had in store for his son. Unfortunately, it was common for most people at that time to have gloomy, superstitious ideas of religion. And these ideas filled Martin with fear and dread and made him think of God as a cruel tyrant rather than a kind Heavenly Father. These were common views in those days. In spite of this, Martin spent several years at Erfurt University. He was training to be a lawyer. But in spite of these gloomy spiritual attitudes surrounding him, he still was deeply religious and he never failed to seek the hope of God on a daily basis with prayer. And little did he imagine the great mission that God was preparing him for. Well, while one day examining the books in the library of the university, Luther discovered a Latin Bible. And this was a book he had never seen before. Now, for the first time, he looked upon the whole of God's Word. And in awe, he exclaimed, Oh, that God would give me such a book for myself. And as he read, a great desire to be free from sin and find peace with God took hold of him. And then something happened to Martin Luther that would change his life direction in a way he could never have imagined. On 2nd of July 1505 he was returning to university after a trip home when during a thunderstorm a lightning bolt struck near him. He terrified him and he fell to his face on the earth. He was terrified of divine judgment. In fact, he thought this was the Lord with a big stick trying to strike him out because he was a sinner. He fell to the ground, and in desperation, he cried out, Oh, Sinella, I will become a monk. And at this point, we might ask, well, hang on a minute, why did he pray to St. Anna instead of God? Well, the Bible truth about the dead knowing nothing was still hidden by generations of error in those days so it was common practice for people to pray to dead saints. But I believe God understood this lack of knowledge and still allowed the young Martin Luther to enter into an experience that would eventually shed a great flood of light upon himself and the world. Well, he survived the storm, and because he felt he could never break his vow... And in spite of the fact his father was disgusted with him and was so angry about Martin giving up his education that he wouldn't even talk to him for two years, in spite of all this, Martin dropped out of law school, sold his books, and a few days later, on the 17th of July, 1505, he entered St Augustine's monastery in Erfurt to become a monk. And in here, he was required to perform the lowest drudgery and to beg from house to house. But he patiently endured this humiliation, believing that it was necessary because he felt he was so sinful. Years later, looking back on his early experience in this monastery, he said this. I was indeed a pious monk, and I followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. But with all his efforts to make himself worthy of salvation, he found no relief from the guilt of sin. But God didn't fail to help him. His mentor, Stupitz, opened the word of God to his mind, and this is what he said to him. He said, instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arm. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. Listen to the Son of God. He became men to give you the assurance of divine favour. Love him who first loved you. Well, at this stage, Martin's, of Martin's experience, he was still a true son of the papal church and he had no thought that he would ever be anything else. In the providence of God, he was led to visit Rome. He pursued his journey on foot, lodging at the monasteries on the way. He entered the city, visited the churches, listened to fantastic stories repeated by priests and monks, and he performed all the seminars required. But everywhere he looked, he saw scenes that filled him with astonishment and horror. He saw that iniquity existed among all classes of the clergy. He heard indecent jokes from prelates, and was filled with horror at their awful profanity, even during Mass. Turn where he would, in the place where he expected holiness, he found evil. Writing about his experiences later, he said, No one can imagine what sins and infamous actions are committed in Rome. They must be seen and heard to be believed. Well, at this time, the Pope had promised an indulgence to all who would climb up Pilate's staircase on their knees. And the Church claimed that these stairs were the very stairs that Jesus descended as he left the Roman judgment Hall and that they were miraculously moved from Jerusalem to Rome. They're They're still there today and devout tourists still climb up these things on their knees. A loser was devoutly climbing these steps unaware that the Lord was about to give him an unforgettable conversion experience. As he climbed suddenly a voice like thunder seemed to say to him The just shall live by faith. Deeply shocked at the realization of what he was doing, he sprang to his feet and hastened from the place in shame and horror, and immediately began his journey home. Well, the text never lost its power upon his soul. From that time on, he saw more clearly than ever before the futility of trusting to human works for salvation and the necessity of constant faith in the merits of Christ. His eyes had been opened and were never again to be closed to the delusions of the papacy. When he turned his face from Rome, he had turned away also in heart. And from that time, the separation grew wider and wider until eventually he severed all connection with the papal church. Eventually, he received the degree of Doctor of Divinity from the University of Wittenberg, where he was employed as a professor of theology. And with the thunderous words, the just shall live by faith, still ringing in his mind, he began to teach that Christians should receive no other doctrine than those which rest on the authority of the sacred scriptures. That's good advice, isn't it? Amen? Mm -hmm. These words struck at the very foundation of papal supremacy, they contained the vital principle of the mighty Protestant Reformation. Precious was the message which he bore to the eager crowds that hung upon his words. Never before had such teachings fallen upon their ears. The glad tidings of the Saviour's love, the assurance of pardon and peace through his atoning blood, rejoiced their hearts and inspired within them within them an immortal hope. At Wittenberg a light was kindled Whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth, and which was to increase in brightness to the close of time. Meanwhile, the Roman Church should be making merchandise of the grace of God. Under the excuse of raising funds for the erection of St. Peter's Church at Rome, indulgences for sin were publicly offered for sale by the authority of the Pope. By the price of crime, a temple was to be built. For God's worship, the cornerstone laid with the wages of iniquity. The official appointed to conduct the sale of indulgences in Germany, the chief salesman, Tetzel by name, he had been convicted of the basest offences against society and against the law of God, but he was still employed to further the mercenary projects of the Pope in Germany. He repeated glaring falsehoods and marvellous tales to deceive an ignorant and superstitious people. In fact, as he entered the town, a messenger went before him announcing, The grace of God and of the Holy Father is at your gates. And the people welcomed the blasphemous pretender as if he were God himself, come down from heaven to them. He set up his dishonorable traffic in the church and extended the pulpit and extolled the indulgences of the most precious gift of God. He even declared that by virtue of his certificate of pardon, all the things which the purchaser should afterward desire to commit would be forgiven him, and that not even repentance was necessary. Imagine that. You could do anything you like, and you'd be quite confident that it didn't matter what you did, you'd be, forg- you'd be forgiven, so long as you put some money in the box. More than this, he assured his hearers that the indulgences even had power to save not only the living, but the dead. That the very moment the money should clink against the bottom of his chest, the soul on whose behalf it had been paid would escape from purgatory and make its way to heaven. Now, believe it or not, Tessel's offer was grasped by eager thousands, and gold and silver flowed into his treasury. While well, a salvation that could be bought with money was more easily obtained than that which requires repentance, faith and diligent effort to resist and overcome sin. Luther, though still a papist of the straightest thought, was filled with horror at the blasphemous assumptions of the indulgence mongers. And many of his own congregation had purchased certificates of pardon and they soon began to come to their pastor confessing their various sins and expecting absolution, not because they were penitent and wished to reform, but on the grounds of the indulgence. Well, Luther refused them absolution, and he warned them that unless they should repent and reform their lives, they must perish in their sins. Well, in great perplexity, they returned to Tessel with the complaint that their confessor had refused his certificates. And some of them even boldly demanded they get their money back. Well, the friar was filled with rage. He added the most terrible curses. He even caused fires to be lighted in the public squares. And he declared that he had received an order from the Pope to burn all heretics who presumed to oppose his most holy indulgences. While well, this was a trigger for Luther to boldly begin his work as a champion of the truth. He told the people not to buy indulgences, but to look in faith to a crucified redeemer. He told him about his own painful experiences in vainly trying to earn salvation by painfully climbing up those stairs on his knees and many other works of humiliation and penance. And he assured his hearers that it was by looking away from himself and believing in Christ that he found peace and joy. But as Tetzel continued his deceptions, Lucy determined to make a bolder protest against them. The festival of All Saints was approaching soon, so Luther, knowing that Tetzel would try to sell his indulgences to the people who came to see the relics, on the day before the festival, he joined the crowd walking to the church, and posted on its door a paper containing 95 propositions against the doctrines of indulgences. And he declared his willingness to defend these theses next day at the university against all who should see fit to attack them. Well, in these theses, it was shown that the power to grant the pardon of sin and to remit its penalty had never been committed to the Pope or to any other man. The whole scheme was a farce, a deception to extort money by playing upon the superstitions of the people. And it was also clearly shown this important statement, that the gospel of Christ is the most valuable treasure of the church, and that the grace of God, it revealed, is freely granted to all who seek it by money. Is that what it says? No, it says by repentance and faith. Well, Luther could not have imagined what the Lord would now do, because remember, this was the time when printing had just been invented. In a few days, they'd been copied and they'd been spread all over Germany. And a year after the posting of his theses on the door, Luther's writings and his doctrines were extending to every nation in Christendom. The works spread to Switzerland and Holland. Copies of his writings found their way to France and Spain. In England, his teachings were received as a word of life. To Belgium and Italy also, the truth had extended Thousands were awakening from the death-like stupor to the joy and hope of a life of faith. The climb out of the Dark Ages had begun. Rome was bent upon the destruction of Luther, but God was his defence. His doctrines were heard everywhere, in cottages and convents, in the castles of the nobles, in the universities and in the palaces of kings. And the noble men were rising on every hand to sustain his efforts. Luther felt confident that the church leaders were reasonable men and they would gladly unite with him in reform. But how mistaken he was. Crafty, ecclesiastics, seeing their gains endangered, they were enraged. They quickly saw that to teach people to look to Christ alone for salvation would stop thousands of streams of money from flowing into the church's coffers. They would overthrow the pontiff's throne and eventually destroy their own authority. So they arrayed themselves against Christ and the truth by opposing the men that God had so clearly sent to enlighten them. The writings of Luther had kindled everywhere a new interest in the Holy Scriptures. And not only from all parts of Germany, but from other lands, students flocked to the university young men coming inside of Wittenberg for the first time would raise their hands to heaven and bless God for having caused the light of truth to shine forth from Wittenberg. But Luther's opponents, burning with a desire for revenge, urged the Pope to take decisive measures against him. And it was decreed that his doctrine should be immediately condemned. Sixty days were granted to Reformer and his adherents. After which, they did, if they did not recant, they were all to be excommunicated. That was the terrible crisis for the Reformation. But when the papal bull reached Luther, with terrible power, he flung back upon Rome herself the sentence of condemnation. In the presence of a crowd of citizens of all ranks, Luther burned the pope's bull, and he said this: "A serious struggle had just begun." Before this, I've been only playing with the Pope. I began this work in God's name. It will be ended without me, and by his might. Who knows if God has not chosen and called me, and if they ought not to fear that by despising me they're despising God himself. While there was peace for Luther for a while, the Pope's edict was not enacted because the princes of Germany were supportive of him. But after a few years, a new emperor, Charles V, ascended the throne of Germany. The elector of Saxony, to whom Charles was in great degree indebted for his crown, he entreated the emperor and he said, Don't take any steps against Luther until you give him a hearing and a safe conduct. So Luther was summoned to appear before the assembly at the city of Worms on April 17th, 1521. And at length, Luther stood before the council. The emperor occupied the throne. He was surrounded by the most illustrious personages in the empire. Never had any man appeared in the presence of a more imposing assembly than that before which Martin Luther was to answer for his faith. And his appearance was of itself a signal victory over the papacy. The Pope had condemned the man and he was now standing before a tribunal which by this very act set itself above the Pope. The Pope had laid him under an interdict and cut him off from all human society and yet he was summoned in respectful language and received before the most august assembly in the world. The Pope had condemned him to perpetual silence and he was now about to speak before thousands of attentive hearers, drawn together from the furthest parts of Christendom. An immense revolution had thus been effected by Lucy's instrumentality. Rome was already descending from her throne, and it was the voice of a monk that caused this humiliation. In the presence of that powerful and titled assembly, the lowly-born reformer seemed awed and embarrassed Several of the princes, observing his emotion, they approached him, and one of them whispered, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Another said, When you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, it shall be given you by the spirit of your father what you shall say. So in this way the words of Christ were brought by the world's great men to strengthen his servants in the hour of trial but Luther was conducted to a position directly in front of the emperor's throne. A deep silence fell upon the crowded assembly. Then an imperial officer arose and, pointing to a collection of Luther's writings, he demanded that the reformer answer two questions. The first question was whether he acknowledged these books as his own and the second one was whether he proposed to retract the opinions which he had expressed on them after the officer read out the titles of the books, Luther replied that actually the first question, he acknowledged the books to be his. to the second, he said, seeing that it is a question which concerns faith and salvation of souls, and in which the word of God, the greatest and most precious treasure, either in heaven or earth, is involved, I should act imprudently were I to reply without reflection. I might affirm less than the circumstances demand, or more than the truth requires. And so sin against this saying of Christ who said, Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And that was in Matthew 10 verse 33. For this reason I entreat your imperial majesty with all humility to allow me time that I may answer without offending against the word of God. Well, he, get, he was given some time, and the next day he was to appear to render his final answer. But that night in his room, his heart sank within him as he contemplated the forces that were combined against the truth. His faith faltered, fearfulness and trembling came upon him, and horror overwhelmed him. Dangers multiplied before him. His enemies seemed about to triumph. And the powers of darkness appeared about to prevail. Clouds gathered about him and seemed to separate him from God. He longed for the assurance that the Lord of hosts would be with him. And an anguish of spirit, he threw himself with his face upon the earth and poured out those broken, heart-rending cries which none but God can fully understand. This is what he prayed. Listen carefully to his prayer. He said, O almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world? Behold, it openeth its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in thee. If it is only in the strength of this world that I must put my trust. All is over. My last hour has come. My condemnation has been pronounced. O God, do thou help me against all the wisdom of the world. Do this thou alone. For this is not my work, but thine. I have nothing to do here, nothing to contend for with these great ones of the world. But this cause is thine, and it is a righteous and eternal cause. O Lord, he says, help me. Faithful and unchangeable God, in no man do I place my trust. All that is of man is uncertain. All that cometh of men fails. He has chosen me for this work. Stand at my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defence, my shield and my strong tower. In his utter hopelessness, his faith fastened upon Christ, the mighty Deliverer, he was strengthened with the assurance that he would not appear alone before the Council. Peace returned to his soul, and he rejoiced that he was permitted to uplift the Word of God before the rulers of the nations. With his mind stayed upon God, Luther prepared for the struggle before him. He thought upon the plan of his answer. He examined passages in his own writing and drew from the Holy Scriptures suitable proofs to sustain his position. Then laying his left hand on the sacred volume which was open before him, he lifted his right hand to heaven and he vowed to remain faithful to the gospel and freely to confess his faith, even should he seal his testimony with his blood. Well, the next morning, when he was again ushered into the presence of the Diet, his countenance bore no trace of fear or embarrassment. Calm and peaceful, yet grandly brave and noble, he stood as God's witness among the great ones of the earth. The Imperial officer now demanded his decision as to whether he desired to retract his doctrines. Luther made his answer in a subdued and humble tone. Without violence or passion, his demeanour was diffident and respectful, yet he manifested a confidence and a joy that surprised the assembly. Proceeding to the question, he stated that his published works were not all of the same character. In some, he had treated his faith and good works, and even his enemies declared them to be not only harmless, but profitable. To retract these would be to condemn truths which all parties confessed. And the second class consisted of writings exposing the corruptions and abuses of the papacy. To revoke these works would strengthen the tyranny of Rome and open a wider door to many and great impieties. In the third class of his books... He had attacked individuals who had defended existing evils. And concerning these, he freely confessed that he had been more violent than was becoming. He did not claim to be free from fault, but even these books he could not revoke. For such a course would embolden the enemies of truth, and they would then take occasion to crush God's people with still greater cruelty. Yes, he said, I am but a mere man, and I'm not God. I shall therefore defend myself as Christ did. If I have spoken evil, then bear witness of the evil. By the mercy of God, I conjure you, most serene emperor, and you, most illustrious princes, and all men of every degree, to prove from the writings of the prophets and apostles that I have heard. As soon as I am convinced of this, I will retract every error and be the first to throw my books into the fire. What I've just said plainly shows, I hope, that I've carefully weighed and considered the dangers to which I expose myself. But far from being dismayed, I rejoice to see that the gospel is now, as in former times, a cause of trouble and dissension. This is the character, this is the destiny of the word of God. He said, I came not to send peace on the earth, but a sword, said Jesus Christ. God is wonderful and terrible in these councils. Beware, lest by presuming to quench dissensions, you should persecute the holy word of God and draw down upon yourselves a frightful deluge of innocent, insurmountable dangers, of present disasters, and eternal damnation. I might quote many examples from the oracles of God. I might speak of the Pharaohs, the kings of Babylon. And those of Israel whose labours never more effectually contributed to their own destruction than when they sought by counsels, to all appearance most wise to strengthen their dominion. But God removed mountains and they know it not. Interestingly Luther had spoken all this in German and he was now requested to repeat the same speech in Latin. He was exhausted by the previous effort but he complied with this. And he again delivered his speech with the same clearness and energy as at the first. God's providence directed in this matter and the minds of many of the princes were so blinded by error and superstition that at the first delivery they didn't see the force of Luther's words or his reasoning. But the repetition in Latin enabled them to perceive clearly the points he was trying to point out. Those who stubbornly closed their eyes to the light and determined not to be convinced of the truth, were enraged at the power of Luther's words. As he stopped speaking, the spokesman of the diet said angrily, You have not answered the questions put to you. You are required to give a clear and precise answer. Will you or will you not retract? The reformer answered, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require for me a clear, simple and precise answer I will give you one and it is this I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other unless therefore I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by the clearest reasoning unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract, for it is not safe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Well, at this speech, the agents of Rome had been worsted they sought to maintain their power not by appealing to scripture but by threats Rome's unfailing argument said the spokesman of the Diet if you do not retract the emperor and the states of the empire will consult what course to adopt against an incorrigible heretic but Luther said calmly my God be my helper but I can retract nothing He was directed to withdraw while the princes consulted together. And Luther's persistent refusal to submit might affect the history of the church for ages. It was decided to give him one more opportunity to retract. So he was brought back into the assembly and again the question was put, would he renounce his doctrines? I have no other reply to make, he said, than that which I've already made. Well, as the Roman legate perceived the effect produced by Luther's speech, he resolved to employ every means at his command to effect the reformers over so. So with all his eloquence and diplomatic skill, he went to the youthful emperor and he whispered to him and spoke to him about the danger of sacrificing the friendship and support of Rome for the cause of an insignificant monk. And unfortunately... This did have an effect on the Emperor because the next day Charles calls the message to be presented to the Diet announcing his determination to carry out the policy of his predecessors to protect the Catholic religion and use the most vigorous measures to oppose Luther and his heresies. With this decision, the ruler of Germany decided that he would not step out of the path of custom even to walk in the ways of truth and righteousness. Because his fathers upheld the papacy, he would do the same, even with all its cruelty and corruption. So he refused to accept any light in advance of what his fathers had received or to perform any duty that they had not performed. Just like Pilate, centuries before, permitted pride and popularity to close his heart against the world's Redeemer. Just like the proud Agrippa confessed to the Apostle Paul, almost that persuaded me to be a Christian. And yet he turned away from the heaven sent message. The same divine power had spoken through Luther to the Emperor and the Princes of Germany. And as the light shone forth from God's word, his spirit pleaded for the last time with many in that assembly. So Charles V, yielding to the dictates of worldly pride and policy, decided to reject the light of truth. Well, the take-home message of this story for us today is what? It is this. Many people today still cling to the customs and traditions of their fathers. So when the Lord sends them additional light, they refuse to accept it. Because not having been granted to their fathers, it was not received by them. Friends, we are not placed in the same time period or in the same circumstances that our fathers were. Our duties and responsibilities are not the same as theirs. We shall not be approved of God if we continue to look at the example of our fathers to determine our duty. Instead of searching the word of truth for ourselves. Our responsibility is greater than was that of our ancestors. We are accountable for the light which they received and which was handed down as inheritance for us. And we are accountable also for the additional light which is now shining upon us from the word of God. The most prolific woman author in all history, Helen G. White, she summed it up very well when she said this. The banner of truth and religious liberty, which these reformers held aloft, has in this last conflict been committed to us. The responsibility for this great gift rests with those whom God has blessed with the knowledge of his word. Friends, that is you and that is me. She said we are to receive God's word as supreme authority. and We must accept the truth for ourselves. And we can appreciate these truths only as we search them out by personal study. And then as we make God's Word the guide of our lives, for us is answered the prayer of Christ. Sanctify them to thy truth. Thy Word is truth. So the questions for you and me today are these. Are you willing to search for truth in God's Word as studiously as did Martin Luther and the reformers of old? Think about this question. And are you willing to stand for the truth in God's strength alone, whenever and wherever he calls you? Please consider these questions as you watch this beautiful hymn written by Martin Luther and sung by the Fountain View Choir in Augusta. A mighty fortress is our God.
1: Welcome, I'm your host John Bradshaw and I'm so glad you've joined us for the Great Controversy production presented by Fountain View Academy Orchestra and Singers.
0: Let us pray. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee so much for the mighty heritage of history, the mighty price that has been paid for the Reformation, a great light that has shone out of darkness upon us today. Hope us, Lord, to appreciate it, to apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray that you will fill us with zeal and enthusiasm, that we might live according to the light you've given us, And spread that light to others, because we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
1: Listening to Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If
0: you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN